Our God, we are thankful that you are sovereign in all the affairs of mankind. Father, sometimes we're frustrated as we see uh, things happening which seem to be so contrary to what we know is good and right. And sometimes it seems to almost as if it's out of control, but we, lo we know, Lord, that nothing is out of your control. And we're so grateful that we rest in the hand of the sovereign God. And we ask you to specifically bless each of us today in those areas of our lives where we have special need today. Lord, I pray that you'll touch us through your word, that it will be living, uh, that we will see these lives before our very eyes today and, and we'll be able to walk, as it were, in their sandals and to sense what they sense, sensed and to have this recognition of the great compassion and love of God. Lord, I pray that in turn we will be a blessing to those around us and that through the lessons we learn we'll be able to encourage others and help them through the struggles they face. We thank you, Father, for your presence here in Christ's name. Amen. I believe we're still in Genesis, so if you will <laughs> turn to the 30th chapter of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 30, I'd like to read again beginning at verse 14. Now in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter for you to take my husband? And would you take my son's mandrakes also? So Rachel said, Therefore he may lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the field in the evening, then Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me. For I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God gave heed to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my maid to my husband. So she named him Issachar. And Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Jacob. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. And afterward she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God gave heed and opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord give me another son. Bit of an unusual passage of scripture one that has a lot of uh, rather eyebrow-raising statements and events in it, we might say. Reuben, youngest, oldest son, but nevertheless a young man. I mentioned to you last time he could have been 10 or 12. He could have been as young as 6. Uh, it's hard to tell. Um, like I mentioned to you before, it seems that in primitive societies, uh, childbirth uh, wouldn't normally come e except every other year. But there are certain constraints within this passage that seems to compress this. Because at the end of seven years, the seven years that he had promised to work for Rachel in addition to the first seven, he comes and makes the bargain we'll be reading about later. So it seems like it's possible at least that all of these 
births were compressed within that seven-year period, and if they were, uh, that would have been a little bit abnormal, but nevertheless possible because God can do anything. But uh, the mandrakes we mentioned last time were considered by some to be an aphrodisiac, and by others were considered to be uh, an element that would induce fertility, and, and those were the two views uh, Leah wanting it as an aphrodisiac and uh, Rachel wanting it as a fertility compound, both, of course, with their eyes on what this would do ultimately relative to Jacob. We noted last time that it was a sad commentary that Leah had to, in effect, in, in effect say that she had hired Jacob for the night. The children born of her, Issachar and Zebulun, though, would round out the sons that would be born to Leah. She would have six sons, and these two were number five and number six. The names, of course, are explained there, and in the case of Issachar, it was my recompense was the concept here, meaning that uh, because she had given her handmaid to Jacob, she thought that somehow this was deserving of reward, and thus God was rewarding her. But we note, of course, that God doesn't reward evil, and it not, was not his will and his plan, because his express plan is in the word for that to take place. So she was obviously mistaken. And the word reports, obviously, accurately, the errors of people that doesn't make them right, of course. Going back to the question that Gorman asked about two weeks ago, I checked with a, quote, expert, and uh, in effect he said that the names are based on various tenses and uh, derivations of the verb, and that the name itself is usually explained by the phrase given. And so Issachar means my recompense from, from the uh, word to hire. And so that's how these names uh, were put together. And, uh, of course, they were produced so long ago that all the little details have kind of gotten a little fuzzy. But in terms of the actual construction of the name, that apparently is, uh, was the basis of their construction. Now, we notice that a daughter is named Dinah. Jacob, it was obvious, continued to visit Leah. The visit for which he had hired him was obviously not the last visit, and you wouldn't expect it would be, because it would seem that this final son, uh, Zebulon, was born within the year, and then would the daughter be born. Now, why did she name Zebulon from the verb to dwell? Well, and as you read that particular passage, there, uh, where she says in verse 20, Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift, good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. This is part of this lady's great cry to God, if it were, as you might expect, as well as hopefully to Jacob. She wanted love. She wanted attention. She needed a husband who cared for her. And she needed someone who didn't just come around occasionally to discover whether he could impregnate her. She was not just a baby machine, even though it almost sounds that way from the passage that 
we're reading. She needed someone to pay attention to her. She needed someone to dwell with her, who would claim her. She wanted to know that she was a worthy person, a worthiness that was beyond the ability simply to produce children. This was her cry. This was her desire. But Jacob was spread too thin, to say the least. He could not possibly meet, especially the emotional needs of four wives. So there would always be this need in their lives, and of course in his too, when it comes right down to the final analysis. He could not even develop the kind of relationship he should have had with Rachel, who was his beloved. He couldn't even have that, uh, that intimacy with her that both of them needed because of these other demands and these other emotional needs of the other wives in his life. And again, what does this prove? It proves over and over again, as the scripture keeps teaching us, that it never pays to deviate from God's commands. Like some have said, jokingly, God did not give us the ten suggestions. He gave us the ten commandments. And these are there for our good. Not because God likes to stand up there uh, like a teacher with an arm crossed and a ruler in his hand, ready to smack the first person gets out of line. That's not God. God's a God of love. He gives us these directions uh, in the Word of God for our good, not for His good. When we deviate from the commands of God, we pay the price. We suffer the consequences. What the Scripture wants us to enjoy is peace, joy, harmony, love, these things that come for those who walk humbly and obediently with God. Now, it's obvious that Jacob continued to visit Leah, even beyond the birth of these six sons, because Dinah is born, and certainly other daughters will be born too. This seems to be true. Why is she called Dinah? Dinah comes from the same root as Dan the verb to judge. And basically, in its form, it means judgment. Why would you name your daughter judgment? Well, we can speculate a lot about it, and various uh, commentators do speculate. We could say that the name was given as a prophetic statement because of an event which occur, would occur in her life and the action that two of her brothers would take against a particular city that would, in effect, be a judgment and maybe... Therefore, she was named prophetically. What is interesting is, though, we know from Scripture that she had sisters, or at least half-sisters. In Genesis 37, 35, we read this. <clears throat> this is after Jacob is told that Joseph is dead, which, of course, Joseph is not, but that's what he's told. And he tears his clothes and puts on sackcloth. And then in verse 35, it says, Then all his sons and his daughters, plural, arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. This teaches us, of course, that he had daughters as well as sons, daughters in addition to Dinah. And they are simply not named. It was not common to name daughters in Scripture. That is, they had names, but they were not recorded in Scripture. Uh, it was very unusual for one to be named, and the fact that she was named is the, 
is, is brought out uh, or illustrates the fact that she's important later on in chapter 34 in the event which transpires in that particular passage. Well, the great day came. God finally gave Rachel a son. Rachel, in turn, gives God the credit for that son, for taking away her shame. Now, the children that she had by Bilhah, her, her maid, they did not, rem although legally they were hers, they did not remove the personal feeling of failure and a divine judgment because she herself had no children. It had been purely a human effort to remove a painful stigma. And you and I know from our study of Scripture that human efforts to remove the pain of, of sin, the pain of the exigencies of life, generally do not produce fruit because God only can heal those deep-seated needs that we have in our hearts and our lives. And the only way Rachel could truly have that joy that she needed within her was to bear a son herself. Bilhah could have had 30 of them. That would never have taken away the sense that she herself had failed because she had not produced for her husband a son. The use of the mandrakes was simply another human effort to help God along, you know. Maybe that's what God wants us to do, help God along in achieving his goal. It's back to that old phrase, God helps those who help themselves. It really sounds, sounds like a pious phrase, doesn't it? It is totally non-scriptural. Because the scripture teaches us God helps those who cannot help themselves not those who can help themselves. In time, God gave Rachel a son. Why did he choose to give her the son when he did? Well, again, we could speculate about that, but one thing seems to emerge, and that was she was finally ready to give God full credit. And, of course, the urgency had reached a climax. She names her son Joseph from the verb to add. So her, his name meant, may he increase. And by that was probably meant at least two things. One thing for sure, because the scripture indicates that she meant by that that there would be another son added, that she would not just have one son, but that she'd be able to give him a brother and have at least two sons. But in addition to that seems to be the desire that this son himself would be very prolific and that coming from him, him would be a great family of people. Now Joseph was Jacob's 11th son, but he would play a leading role in the very survival of the family. Now God is capable of doing anything, right? God can miraculously preserve anyone by any means he chooses. But God chose to use Joseph as the instrument of preserving this family a little bit later on. It was not, of course, because Joseph himself was so worthy. 
but because of God's plan. Now, if you read through the book of Genesis, you'll discover that the story of Joseph occupies 20% of the book of Genesis. Now, we have talked already about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then we'll come to Joseph. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Only Abraham occupies more of Scripture than, more of Genesis than does Joseph. Joseph occupies more Scripture than either Isaac or Jacob. Uh, so that tells us a little bit of something of the importance of this man and what God was doing through the man Joseph. Now, we know from our own reading of the book of Genesis at other times that Joseph was to become the most godly and the most prominent of all the sons of Jacob. And as we study that particular passage, when we get to it, we'll recognize he wasn't always wise in everything he said and did. But who is? And part of that's a matter of learning as time passes to submit to God and his authority. Because he was the firstborn son of the beloved wife, that is Rachel, he was accorded more attention than normally would be accorded to an 11th son. Now think about it. Put yourself in Jacob's place for a minute. Who are you? <laughs> oh, you're number 11. Oh, okay. <laughs> What's your name? <laughs> I'm seeing you around here for the last three years. <laughs> Whatever. You know, I mean, after a while, it's just a horde of kids running around. And certainly they weren't the only kids. There were other children in the general community, too. And so, why is it that Joseph should become the object of his father's attention to the point that he get, his father would get him in a great deal of trouble later on, you know, giving him this, this fancy garment that he should wear, stereotyping him in front of all of his brothers as the object of his father's love? You know, we often criticize Jacob for that, but... When you think about that for a moment, what would you do in that situation, you know? This is the firstborn of your beloved. I mean, the woman for whom he had worked seven years without having her as his wife, you know? And, and then all the hocus-pocus that went in between. It would be a strong temptation to do as Jacob did. God would use Jacob to do great things. And his commitment to God would greatly exceed that of all of his brothers, any of his brothers. But you know, in spite of all that, he was not in the direct line of Messiah. His two sons would replace him in the tribal list, generally speaking. And the combined population of the families of those two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, would greatly exceed the population of any of the other descendants of the other sons, that is, the other tribes. Ephraim and Manasseh combined would be the largest tribe, and that was, in effect, the tribe of Joseph. But why, why was it that we don't have the continuation of the tribe of Joseph? Why was it that there was a division into Ephraim and Manasseh, and they became the tribal names rather than Joseph. Remember why? Well, how many tribes were there supposed to be? Twelve. And when the uh, land was divided up, it was divided up into twelve parcels. But if you take eleven sons 
and then the 12th son, you divide him into two, you have 13. So who was the 13th oddball tribe? Yes, Levi. Levi. And Levi would not be given a special portion of the promised land. But Levi would be given cities scattered throughout all of the other tribes because that would be the, the priestly tribe. And so the division of Joseph into Ephraim and Manasseh was for the purpose of maintaining the twelve as political entities with Levi not being a political entity but being the priestly tribe. Now, you probably also will remember that uh, the name of Ephraim, the younger of the two sons of Joseph, would become the name synonymous with the northern kingdom of Israel. And the ten northern tribes, as they collected together later, and they followed Jeroboam and did not follow Rehoboam, Solomon's son, they would collectively be known as Ephraim. And over and over again in Scripture, they're referred to as Ephraim, and the prophets refer to them as Ephraim. So the ten tribes would be collectively known by the name of one of the sons of Joseph. And it's interesting because you have the hill country of Ephraim, you have the forests of Ephraim. I mean, that name would be used many, many times in even the geographic nomenclature. May he increase. Did he increase? He increased to the most numerous tribe of all. But through which of the sons of Joseph, I'm sorry, of Jacob would Messiah come? Judah. Who was Judah's mother? Leah, right. So Messiah does not come through the beloved Rachel, but comes through the one that was constantly feeling like she had been shunted aside and not treated properly, Leah. And when you look back through the lineage of Scripture and you discover that God brings in a Ruth, and uh, God brings in a Canaanite prostitute into the line of Messiah, and you look at this, and, and what does it tell you about God? As it says in Scripture, he is no respecter of persons. He doesn't look down and say, aha, that person's worth $300 million. I better honor this person and use this person because he's more valuable than the other persons out there. God views us all equally. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, in terms of God's dealings with us as members of the kingdom of God. And that was probably not something that Leah knew, nor if she had known it, would that have been completely comforting. But nevertheless, in the eternal picture of things, it was true. The southern kingdom after the division, would come to be known by the name Judah. And in effect today, we still refer to those people as the sons of Judah, do we not? We call them Jews. Let's look at the next passage, beginning with verse 25. Now when it came about, when Rachel had born Joseph, that Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own place and to my own country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you and let me depart. For you yourself know 
my service which I have rendered you. But Laban said to him, If now it pleases you, stay with me. I have divined that the Lord has blessed me on your account. And he continued, Name your wages, and I will give it. And he said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your cattle have fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased to a multitude. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? So he said, What shall I give you? And Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this one thing for me, I will again pasture and keep your flock. Let me pass through your entire flock today, removing from there every speckled and spotted sheep, every black one among the lambs, and the spotted and speckled amongst the goats. Such shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come concerning my wages. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, will be considered stolen. And Laban said, Good, let it be according to your word. So he removed on that day the striped and spotted male goats and all the speckled and spotted female goats, every one with white in it, and all the black ones among the sheep, and gave them into the care of his sons. And he put a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. This last half of the 30th chapter of the book of Genesis has some pretty weird things in it, particularly in, in the final passage where he starts stripping off tree branches and sticking them in front of the sheep so the sheep will have stripes, you know. <laughs> but anyway, uh, again, the scripture simply relates the things that happened, the things that people believed, the things that people did. The scripture is not thereby endorsing everything because it simply relates it. By the time Joseph was born, Jacob had spent at least 14 years in service to Laban. 14 years. Now, all that he had to show for that nearly decade and a half of service was four wives, ten sons, and at least one daughter. That was it. He had nothing else to show. And the desire came upon him to... Pardon me, to return to Canaan. Now, I'm sure that wasn't a new thought to him. I'm sure he thought of home a lot. I wonder how things are with Father Abraham, I mean, <laughs> Father Isaac, and with Mother Rebecca. How are things back home? <laughs> Is Esau still hate me? What's happened with Esau? There doesn't seem to have been much communication between him and his family. But he wanted to go home so that he could begin an inheritance for his family. Now today, we often, as, as couples and families, aren't particularly concerned about creating an estate for the inheritance of our children. I mean, that's not really our primary goal in life, usually. And then every once in a while you read the back of somebody's uh, motorhome, you know, we're spending our kids' inheritance or however that goes. But in, in the case of the day we're talking about, it was always important to be sure that you provided for your children for their future, that you created an inheritance for them. And this is his goal. He wants to create an inheritance for his sons. 
And he saw no way to obtain that inheritance if he continued to work for Laban. How in the world could he build an inheritance working for this miser, living here in Paden Aram? But you know what's interesting? It was not God's time for Jacob to go home. You see, it was Jacob's thought, Jacob's desire. It was not planted there at that time by God. God was not saying to him, rise up and go back to Canaan. Because God had a purpose for him yet in Paden Aram. And God had a purpose to allow six additional years to pass in Canaan before Jacob made the journey home. So his question was, how can I do it here? Now, we sing the song sometimes, God can make a way where there seems to be no way. That's really profoundly scriptural when you think about it. I mean, it doesn't quote a specific scripture verse, but, but that's a teaching of scripture. God can make a way. God will make a way where there seems to be no way. And Moses would have to believe that one day when he stood before the Red Sea, leading this motley crowd of people with Pharaoh's army behind him. He had to believe God's going to make a way where there is no way. And of course, the way opened up. But that doesn't just apply for two million Israelites in the wilderness. It applies for you and for me daily in our own lives. God will make a way. James in the first chapter in the 14th verse says, Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. That verse is, is, is also profound in that it not only teaches us that every good and perfect gift comes down from God, which I don't think we have that much heart, uh, difficulty understanding, but it teaches us that God is immutable. That God does not change. That God is not fickle like the gods of, of mankind. He's not capricious. You think of the gods of the pagan peoples, and, and they never knew what the gods were going to do next. So they were always trying to do this to appease the gods and sacrifice that because they didn't know what the gods were going to do. Our God is not like that. You know what he's going to do in the sense that he's going to do what is right and good and best. And he's expressed his will in the word. And so every good and perfect gift comes down from the one who is unchanging and who gave good gifts to Rachel and to Jacob and to Leah as he gives good gifts to you and to me today. And this is his, and we have to recognize that it is his desire to do that. God wants to give us good gifts. He's not a miser, he's not a Laban up there looking down trying to see what he can get and only bestowing a gift if he has to to keep somebody happy. No, that's the way God operates and we are Certainly well aware of that. He wants to give us good gifts. All the time he wants to give us good gifts. Unfortunately, our definition of a good gift isn't always his definition of a good gift. Some of us would say a good gift would be a $500,000 mansion on the Sacramento River. And God would say, that's not a good gift. <laughs> that's a very bad gift because your eyes would be turned from me rather than serving me. You would serve that, that thing over there. And, of course, the greatest gift that Scripture talks about in addition to our salvation is the gift of His Holy Spirit. And, and the New Testament talks about that a great deal. What is interesting is God is going to use Laban's greediness to bless Jacob. It's wonderful what God does. He takes evil and makes it good, just as Joseph would say later. You meant it for evil, but God meant it 
for good. Isn't it wonderful to serve a God who is all-powerful and can turn any and every circumstance to the good of his people and for the purposes of his glory? Now Laban was a man who knew a bargain when he saw one. And he knew Jacob was a bargain here. I mean, after all, taking two daughters off his hands and uh, helped to uh, multiply his uh, wealth here. So he was ready to make a deal to keep Jacob around, Jacob around, ready to make a deal. Now, making a deal was not particularly difficult for Laban because Laban never quite felt totally obliged to carry out his end of the deal. Uh, he always figured that there was a way by which he could slither out of this uh, particular agreement and uh, minimize his own losses. But apparently he perceived, somehow he perceived, that God was blessing him because of Jacob's presence. Now this is not to say in any way that, Je that Laban was a godly man. He didn't discover this in his morning devotion to Yahweh. He was anything but a godly man. In fact, the scripture tells us here in verse 27 that the perception came through divination. He said, I have divined the Lord. And the literal Hebrew word that is translated here is the root word for to practice divination, an occultic activity. So somehow, as things improved economically, he wanted to know where was the good button that was being pushed so that things were happening in a good way for him, and he wanted to make sure he kept pushing it, so he went to, to whom did he go? Did he go before God? I don't think so. In the next chapter, we're going to learn about his household gods, his teraphim, uh, his little idols here. And uh, he probably had these little idols, you know, and he arranged them in a certain pattern and, you know, went to them to discover what the truth was. And does, does God work through divination? No, God just simply overrules. And God just smacked him between the eyes and said, dummy, I did it. And, and so, you know, he got the point, even though he didn't acknowledge or worship the God of Abraham. One thing about polytheists, though, they'll take any God that comes along. If he seems to be a God that's going to be helpful, they'll add him too, or her, whatever it happens to be. And that's why Rome had, you know, if you ever go to Rome, you'll, you'll run across this really odd-looking building called the Pantheon. You know, it's, it's built like a sphere, but it has a Greek square facade in the front, so it's really, you know, incongruous. But uh, that building was built to house the statues of all the gods the Romans conquered. They didn't want to leave anybody out, so they stuck all the gods in here. Of course, they didn't go quite to the extent the Greeks did. They were a little bit wiser, as Paul noted later. They even had an you know, a, a, a altar to the unknown god in case they left one out. The Romans hadn't quite got that far uh, yet, at, at least. I don't know of any such altar in the Pantheon. But uh, we have here a man who has recognized that things were going a lot better since Jacob had come. And he knew, of course, that Jacob worshipped Yahweh, but he hadn't put two and two together until he went through this divination process. Now, let's just think about that family for a minute. Laban was of the family of Terah, as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were. Laban was still living in Paden Aram. When Terah came from Ur of the Chaldees to Haran, he certainly brought with him his pagan practices and the gods that he had worshipped there in Ur of the Chaldees. Ur of the Chaldees, or Ur of Sumer, was a pagan city 
the Sumerians were polytheists who worshipped many gods, gods who were ancestral to the gods of the Babylonians and the Assyrians, and gods who would later show up amongst the Canaanites in a different version called Baal, or in other neighboring tribes, Chemosh or Molech or whatever. They're all various uh, varieties of the original Enlil, who was uh, sort of the god of the storm, the more personal god of the Sumerians, but amongst a whole a pantheon full of gods that they worshipped too. So as Terah came to Haran, he brought with him his worship. Abraham was called out of that by the true and living God. But that call apparently did not impact the whole family. And so Laban was still a pagan, worshipping pagan gods. And it seems that the only members of that family who truly became followers of the living God were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their wives, Sarah, Rebekah, Leah, and Rachel. And Rachel is a little bit suspect because of the events we'll read about in the next chapter. But here, and of course, I, you know, we can't say that Leah was gung-ho either. We don't really know. It, it, she does honor God, and she does give God credit for things uh, that happen, particularly the sons that are born. So we, we can take from that she was a believer. But the rest of the family, apparently not. And what's interesting is that once you get beyond the 31st chapter of Genesis, the family disappears from biblical history. It's gone. Which may mean that it just was swallowed up in the paganism of the Arameans and uh, never again was the fountain of godly individuals. Even members of the Hebrew patriarchal family, the one we've been talking about here, would deviate from the truth. Specifically, Ishmael and Esau. They were born into this, this patriarchal family, but where would they go? Off on their own ways, and they would become fathers of other great pagan peoples. Following God does not come naturally. Following the world, the flesh, and the devil comes naturally. If we want to just live a natural life, we're going to follow the world, the flesh, and the devil. It is not our nature to pursue God. It is not our nature to understand God. It's God coming after us that changes our lives. Jesus said in Matthew 8 that the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. But the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. It is not easy to follow God. It is not part of our fallen nature to follow God or to even want God. We literally have to fight our way through. Now, I'm not saying we fight our way through to come to know God because we know God reaches down and pulls us up and God makes the original contact. It is God who saves us. It is God who instills the faith. But if we want to walk with him, if we want to continue in the way that he has set before us, for us, it is a fight. It's not just an easy flowery path that we walk down on some, you know, balmy April afternoon with, you know, apple petals or whatever fluttering down all around us. That is not life. It becomes a matter of our choice. We must choose to obey. We must choose to intensely study this book. We must choose to learn how to pray effectively, to practice what Dr. Erwin Lutzer calls combat prayer. Not just 
now I lay me down to sleep or, you know, God bless this food we're about to partake, or, or even the prayers that we often pray, uh, which, you know, are a little bit more specific, but to really learn how to pray in the fight, to fight the battle. Most of us have a long ways to go in that area. Paul told Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. When you read the letters of Paul, you get a sense of struggle, of battle, of warfare. You don't get a sense of phew, just down the broad avenue with great ease. And so it's going to be a struggle. And that struggle is going to be lifelong. It never gives up. And the older you get, you think, well, you know, it's retirement time. Well, it may be retirement time from certain normal things that used to be a part of your life, but every time I talk to someone who's retired, they never know how they ever worked work in, in with all the things they've got in their lives. But there is no such thing as retiring from the Christian life and still remaining in this flesh and walking in this planet alive. It's a battle to the very end because Satan's not the kind who says, oh, that poor guy, that poor gal, they've, they've, they've struggled along for 70 years. I think I'll just let them alone. You know, they've, they've had enough. <laughs> no. He's not kind in any sense of the word. He's out to get all of us at any point he can. And so it is a battle from day one to the day we pass into glory. So it's going to be a battle for Jacob. And Laban's not going to be his ally in this battle. It, Laban is part of the enemy. And so Laban says, name your wages. Whatever you want, I'll give it to you if you'll stay here. I'll make it worth your while to stay with me. And I'm sure in the back of his mind, Jacob says, yeah, right. I know what kind of character you are. But you see, God was there, and God caused Jacob to come up with a plan in his own mind because, you see, God wasn't ready to move Jacob yet. Now, Laban could know this. He had endeavored to deceive Jacob before. And we're going to see as we get into a later passage, that that was not the only time he attempted to deceive Jacob, but that he had changed Jacob's wages time and time again. And also, it was quite clear to Jacob that Laban was anxious to keep him here. If you're a boss and you're hiring an employee, you try to be as matter-of-fact about the whole thing as possible, right? You don't want that potential employee to think you really need them and badly want them. Because if that is so, and you ask them, well, what kind of a wage do you expect? They're going to say, a big wage, as opposed to a more modest wage if they're not sure if they even have a chance here or not. So Laban had kind of uh, displayed his hand, if you will, here. And, he, and Jacob knew he needed him and wanted him. And so Laban was in a position where he could expect to pay a high price to keep Jacob. But why was that not a concern to Laban? The same reason we've already talked about. He always had figured out a way to worm out of it. He always figured a way to try to reduce the wage or reduce the cost to himself. And he had full faith in himself that he'd be able to do this later on. No matter what wage Jacob ex extracted, this would prove to be wrong. But you'll notice, and we don't have time to develop today, but next week we're going to look at this in detail. And as you look at a detail, you're going to discover that Laban did absolutely everything humanly possible to balance the thing in his favor and to make it as least likely as possible that Jacob would get much out of this whole deal. 
See, Laban is greedy from, from day one. And he's not going to say, oh, Jacob been such a good guy. I need to be fair with him. I need to share with this guy. No, that was not his, his uh, wish at all. He, even though this man was married to his two daughters, and those were his grandchildren running around, he was not willing to bless Jacob to the extent that his own grandchildren would be adequately provided for in the long run. Think about that for a minute. Somebody who didn't even care that much about his own grandchildren, what kind of a person was he? A very, very greedy person. And greed is a very awful thing. And that's what Jacob had to face here. And that's not to say that uh, others, even of the, of the uh, patriotic line, were immune to that. <laughs> they weren't. But uh, at this particular point in time, uh, Laban is a prime example. And so uh, here is Jacob faced with this situation. What is he going to ask? Well, we read the passage, but as I said a minute ago, we need to look at that a little bit carefully because if you just run over it real quickly, you can get a wrong idea of what happened here. In fact, it's very confusing uh, a little bit because of what verse 32 says relative to what happens uh, later on. And so... We'll have to look at that in some detail, and we'll do that next week.